Luke chapter 15. So as the kids leave, open up your Bibles, Bible apps, iPads, whatever you have to the gospel according to Luke, mission to the world. Mission to the world. Reading from, we read already from the ESV, I'll be reading from the ESV as well. Um, over the next two weeks, over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at this parable, uh, what has been known as the, pro, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. As I mentioned last week, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 15, Jesus says there was a man who had two sons, okay? So though, yeah, we're going to look at this parable of the prodigal son, by the way, by the way, the word prodigal is an old English word come from the Latin prodigalis, um, senselessly extravagant. Um, we find that verse in verse 13, the Greek um, equivalent, reckless living. Um, we're going to be looking at the prodigal son, but it doesn't stop there. This is about two sons. So there's a lot to learn today about the prodigal son, even more so about the father, really, the father's response to his return home. We don't want to lose sight that Jesus is talking to two groups of people, and he's talking about two sons. And the eldest son will, eldest son will look at next week, verses 25 through 32. Um, last week, we looked at the sheep and the lost coin in chapter 15, verses 4 through 10. And we said that What's very important to understand is the context of these parables. Jesus opens up uh, in chapter 15, verse 1. Luke tells us he opens up with these words. Um, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. They They were drawing near to hear Christ. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. They were saying, this man Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And fellowships with them, a table fellowship with them, especially in the Near East. That's a, that's, that's a very intimate time. They're, they're eating with sinners. So Jesus tells them, who's them? The Pharisees and the scribes, this parable. So it's important to know as we jump into these parables to know what he was saying that they were coming to hear him and who was drawing near to him. It tells us a lot about this parable. Now, as we've been studying the gospel according to Luke, we've been traveling with Jesus through Galilee. He's on his way now to Jerusalem. And he's been declaring that he's the king of kings, Lord of lords, the Messiah, the ultimate anointed one, the one who has come to proclaim good news to the poor. We saw that in Luke 4. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captain, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's been demonstrating his authority, his power through his teaching and his healing, and all of that was a pointer, was authenticating his kingship, his deity, his lordship. He even announced it as authority to forgive sins, that which only God can do. He's been calling people to repent, to turn, and to follow him, teaching them that following him means to be, what it means to be his disciple. If you remember, that was very, it was very clear and some very hard expectations, obligations that he says to his followers. If you want to come and follow me, he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Whoever wants to lose, excuse me, whoever save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. Then we look at Luke 14, 26. He says, if anyone wants to come to me, that's Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When we looked at that, we said that was a Hebrew idiom uh, that expressed not hate actively, but hate comparatively. There's to be this large gap between the love that we have for others and the love of Jesus. I saw Tim Keller, uh, well, not Tim Keller himself, He's, he's with Jesus, but there was a post that said, the only way to love 
others well is to love Jesus first. And I thought that was, that was great. That's so true. And he got that from this text. And Luke also has been telling us not only what it means to be a disciple, but that there are some religious leaders that have been hostile toward Jesus, his ministry and his, and his message. And Jesus has probably the most harshest words toward these religious leaders known as the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees, we know, we see them in the text this morning. Uh, they come from a group, uh, actually the Aramaic term means separate ones, the separatists. They, were, they, they, they felt it was their uh, work to keep the nation faithful to God. They came up with all kinds of different elaborate systems, traditions to prevent the violation of the Mosaic law, law. but with their you know, mistaken zeal and pride, they were strangling people with their rules and man-made regulations. The scribes were known as the, also known as teachers of the law. They studied, interpreted, and transmitted the law, and they worked together. We see that here. They're working together against Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. And the text tells us that sinners and, and tax collectors, they, they, remember we saw that last week, uh, they were hated, they were considered traitors. They were drawing near to Jesus as Jesus was teaching and proclaiming all that we just said. The religious leaders, though, on the other hand, were grumbling toward him. That's the context. We saw last week Jesus told these grumbling religious separatists, Bible-thumping leaders, that were supposed to be spiritual shepherds of Israel, that they're not good shepherds. They're not good shepherds because they don't seek the one lost sheep that has, been, that has wandered away until they find it. They don't value people, lost people, like the woman who lost one of her ten valuable silver coins and, and lights a lamp, sweeps the house, right, and seeks it diligently until she finds it. Jesus was making it clear, we saw last week, that God seeks and pursues sinners. Aren't you glad? Like sheep that can't find their way back on their own and God seeks after them. Or a valuable coin that cannot be found by itself. Both are rescued and found by God. And ultimately Jesus was telling these Pharisees, they're sharing this parable with, teaching this parable to the Pharisees and the scribes, that they don't understand what makes God have joy. It's the recovery of sinners. Repentant sinners, sinners. And last week, these two parables, it was such a wonderful picture of the missionary heart of God. A God who seeks and finds great joy. A God who rejoices and shouts in gladness when he finds and recovers his lost children through the gift of repentance and faith. That's the context. And Jesus now will continue on the next parable. And we'll see it in three headings. The son's rebellion, the son's return, and the son's reunion. The rebellion, the return, and the reunion. Look with me again. Verse 11. It's telling a parable with two sons. Verse 12. And the younger of them, of the two, probably in his teens, late teens, maybe he's not married. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Now, understand in that culture, the sons were entitled to the inheritance of the father. The older son would get twice as much as the other children. Here, in this case, obviously, the eldest son would get two-thirds, and the younger son would get a third of the estate. But when do you usually receive an inheritance? 
when the one who left it behind for you passes away and dies. So for this younger son, Jesus wants to make it clear, to come to his dad and request my inheritance now while the father is still alive is very disrespectful. What the son was telling his dad was, I, I want my stuff now. I, I don't care about you. I'm not interested in my relationship with you. My relationship with you really is the means, my means to my own ends. What is very interesting here is the word property in verse 12 is the word, is the Greek word bion, which we get our word biology. The life of the father is what he was after. In that culture, everything was tied to your inheritance or your, I should say your, your, uh, your land, right? The, the land was given by God. It was God's land. It was given to you. It, you belong to God and the land belonged to God. And he just disregarded, really, just regarded his father with complete contempt by asking for his property. And in that culture where the, um, it was a shame and honor culture, predominantly led by the Ten Commandments, honor your mother and your father, any son who would disrespect his father that way from, from a healthy dad is really just saying, listen, I wish you were already dead. I want my stuff, right? I, I can't wait any longer. Just give me what's mine, and I don't really, I'm not interested in a relationship with you. Now, a typical response would have been a crack across the mouth. <laughs> Maybe even a public declaration. My son is dead. In that culture, it might have been even a funeral. That's how serious this disrespectful act was. In fact, look at verse 24. My son was dead. Verse 32, your brother was dead, right? The, 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 he, is, he is completely out of the family as if he was dead. And the only way back that the son could possibly come home would be to earn his way back into the graces because of the family dishonor that he brought upon them. Jesus is teaching us in this parable, them and us in this parable, of this great shame that came upon the family, the father. But was just as startling as the son's disrespect and dishonor of his father is the response of his father. Look what it says. He, re he requests and the father says, it says, he, the father, divided his property between them. Usually when love is rejected, there's anger. When love is rejected, there we get we, we, we are bitter, we retaliate when love is spurned. There's a withdrawal of, of affection. If that's what you want, you go. And I want to just guard my heart. I don't want nothing to do with you. And I want to protect myself from more pain. The greater the love, the greater the pain. We know that. But not with the father. Here he, he bears the burden and maintains, as we see, his affection for his son. That's our God. This is God saying to the sinner, you want to go your own way, you go. He gives this freedom to the son to go and sin. And as this young boy's greed began to grow and grow, maybe identifying, Jesus wants him to identify with the tax collectors. We talked about how they could be greedy collecting taxes. It says in verse 13, not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So we see not many days. He wanted to make a quick sale and get out of town. 
The Greek expression, gathered all he had, comes from the world of finance. In other words, he took the property that was given to him, turned it around quickly in cash, and jetted. He wanted his gifts. He wanted his stuff without loving the one who gave him the stuff. Who knows, maybe he was working this deal out for quite some time, we don't know. But notice he converts the land to money, and where does he go? Far, far away, into a far country. Left the promised land. Living in a pagan land. The son wants freedom. The son wants independence. The son wants distance. He wants nothing to do with anyone who knows him. He wants nothing to do with anyone having any authority over him telling him what to do. He wants no accountability and he goes far, far away. Family, that's what sin does. Sin isolates you. Sin isolates me. It takes you away from the family of God. It takes you away from the word of God. It takes you away from the community of God. And let's be honest, before we judge, let's relate a little bit here. Are, are you here this morning maybe and not getting involved in community? Community group, 15, 16 community groups. Are you, are you not getting involved in community? Because maybe, you know, you don't, you don't want anyone to know what's going on in your life. You isolate yourself. Excessive drinking, drugging, surfing the internet in private and dark so that nobody knows. Maybe you're, maybe, maybe you're in a relationship. You don't want anybody to know. So you don't want to get involved in community. Young boy goes far, far, far away. Are you far away? Do as he did. Come to your senses. Repent. Come home. That's what the message is. Come to your senses. Repent and come home. Meanwhile, the, the youngest son squanders his property in reckless living. Squandered means to scatter, to throw. In other words, he was just blowing it away. Reckless living has a connotation of luxury. Throwing and blowing your money away in expensive tastes. In verse 30, if you look down in verse 30, it's, Brother says that he spent his money on prostitutes. Some commentators say, yeah, he was slandering his brother because he was mad. Some commentators say, you know what? Jesus knows. He told the story. The, the, son, the other son must have known, figured it out through the grapevine. Or somebody must have told him. I'm not quite sure, but we can imagine what the boy was spending his money on. What are we doing with our time? What do we do with our money? What do we do with our talents, with our gifts? Are we squandering them? Are we considering? Are, are, are we serving? Are we living on mission? Are we advancing the kingdom? Are we using that which God has given us? Time, treasures, talents, gifts to further his kingdom? Are we squandering? It's a good question. Verse 14, he spent everything. <laughs> and then a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. Hmm, interesting. Verse 16, no one gave him anything. Finds himself in need, no one has given him anything. Been there, right? I've been there, I've, been done, I've done that. Unfortunately, I came down that road. Living a party life, all is good. Party runs out, cash runs out, crickets. Mad cash flowing, people around, everybody wants to hang out with you. Let the money and the, and, the, and the stuff run out. No one's around anymore. Finds himself in need. No one's got anything for him. 
The young son couldn't, you know, spent all he had. He couldn't even find a job. It's a result of, of, of stupid, rebellious decisions, no question. But notice, a famine came. And you say, oh, man, he got, he got a bad, he got a really bad now. I say, praise God for the famine. Praise God for the famine. It wasn't his fault. It was God working in his life. You know, sometimes God's works in our life. He brings us to that place and uh, destruction and, and, and difficulties and hardship. And he's just trying to get us, or I know get me, I shall say, to stop leaning on our own strength and wisdom. Because I think I got it all together. That's how I came to faith. God broke me down. Broke me down. And then he was there to pick me up. It wasn't his fault. God working in his life. Now, when, we, when you read famine in the scriptures, just so you know, famine, when you said the famine came upon land, it wasn't like, I haven't eaten today. All right? I, I know when I say that at home, and I'm like, I'm starving. My wife's like, you're not starving. I'm like, I, I know, but I'm, I'm really hungry. All right, well, really hungry and starving are two different things. I'm like, okay. Famine in scripture means people are dying because they don't have enough food. Okay? It's not I haven't had lunch. That's not what famine means. All right? I haven't eaten. No, start, people are dying. But even though the young man's party's days were, were, were over, and he's in need, no one's around, he's still not ready to go home. He, he, he's not humble yet. Humility, humility hasn't reached that level. Humiliation hasn't reached that level. He's still full of pride. Verse 15. So, rather go home, I went and hired myself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs, verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, we know from the Old Testament law, what Jesus is pointing to here, it's that bad. You're not allowed to eat pork, no bacon, no sausage. I know I'm hungry too. Low as low can go. That's the point. He hired himself. That, that word hired himself, kaleo, is it, the word we get, the word glue. He stuck himself to those in the country, to, in, in this foreign land. The, he, they couldn't shake him. Give me a job. Give me a job. I need a job. I'm holding on to his arm, begging him. Like, get rid of this guy. Wouldn't let go. He's stuck. Can't get rid of him. Family, sin promises freedom, but Jesus tells in John 8, it's slavery. It brings slavery. Those who sin are a slave to sin. Sin promises success. It only brings failure. Sin promises life, but the wages of sin is what? Death, Romans 6. I mean, think about the text. Think about the story that Jesus is teaching, right? I mean, think about it. You're fighting your way to get food with pigs, Pushing, grabbing, trying to eat what they're eating. That's pretty bad. It's a picture, isn't it, of life without Christ. Sin is rebellion. Sin is treason against our God. Sin is running from God who loves you. Waiting for you to return. To, to allow, instead of wallowing in your sin, but coming home to him. It's not simply violating the law of God, although it is. It is a lack of love and honor and, re and relationship of the one who created you. It's rebellion against relationship. Sin is rebellion against relationship. 
The son was helpless, homeless, hungry, and humiliated, lost as lost can be. What a picture of our spiritual condition outside of Christ. So where are you living today in your mind, in your heart? Are you wallowing in a pig pen? Are you relating with pigs, fighting with pigs? Or are you ready for a relationship with God? Waiting for you is God. Waiting for you is God. Waiting for you to return home as the son returned home. You have the son's rebellion. And now you have the son's return. Remember from last week we talked about repentance. Look with me, verses 17 and following. Uh, we said that true biblical repentance is, has three aspects to it. One is the mind. Okay, the mind. There's an insight of the mind. True biblical repentance, there's an insight of the mind that comes to understand that we have sinned against God. We said that. Look at the text. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's higher servants have more than enough bread? I'm perishing here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. This is, this is something he's, he's talking to himself, right? I, will, I think this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to arise and go to my father, and I'll say to my father, I have sinned against heaven, that's God, and I've sinned before you. He, he, he realizes that he is sinning against God. He's realized he is perishing, and he realized that there's a hired hand at my father's place that eat better than me. Listen, true repentance sees the absurdity of sin in light of God's goodness and grace. Repentance sees the absurdity of sin in light of God's goodness and grace. Romans 2, it is God's kindness that is meant to lead you, to lead me to repentance. Like, I'm out here, I'm a mess. I'm going to get up, I'm going to tell my dad I've sinned against God, I've sinned against him. Repentance is a change of thought and attitude towards sin. It's the inside of the mind. He doesn't make excuses. Yeah, my brother, if he, wasn't, if he was nice to me, I wouldn't have left home. If my dad did this, he's not pointing fingers. He's not making excuses. He's not pointing fingers at other people's behaviors. He is taking personal responsibility, and he fesses up for all that he has done. That's where repentance begins. It begins with an acute and accurate evaluation of our condition, taking personal responsibility for our actions. Without that... You're never going to move on. I'm never going to move on. He accepts full responsibility for the predicament he found himself in, and he admits that he has destroyed his relationship with his father. And notice that the son remembers, as I mentioned, that his father paid the hired hand more than enough food to survive. Now, understand, in those days there were there was children, there were slaves, and then there were hired hands. Now, when you think of slavery, don't think of modern slavery, but in those days, the slave was almost treated like the family. They were taken care of, but the, the hired hands were even lower. They, they were the people that were hired. They were unskilled workers, willing to do whatever it took for the day, just for the day. Just give me a job for the day, a little bit of money so that I could survive. And what the son is saying, think about it. He's saying, look, my dad is a generous dad. My, my father at home actually takes care of the hired hand, the lowest ones on the totem pole, better than I'm being taken care of right now. They have food. They have things they, that they need to survive. It says a lot about what he thinks about his father. The second aspect of repentance is emotional. Look at verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You can hear 
the desperation. I, I am not worthy to be called your child. You can hear desperation. You can hear pain, despair, brokenness, separation over his sin. He understood something of the goodness of the Father, and now he's ready to place himself in the mercy of the Father, confessing his sin, broken and willing to go back and do what needs to be done. In that day, the rabbis would teach that an apology and a confession of sin is not enough. You have violated the community standards. You have to pay and make restitution. Make me a hired hand is what he's saying. I'll begin to make restitution. I'll begin to repay back all that I squandered. That, that's the plan when I come home. That's the aspect of repentance. It's, it's an emotional. You know you've recognized that you have broken the heart of God. That your heart is broken. Your mind is caught up in what the holiness of God, the the, the sin against God, and your heart is broken because God's heart is broken. You move from, from the head to the heart, but there's a third piece of, of true repentance. It's the volitional aspect of repentance, the choices we make. There's confession with the mouth, there's contrition with the heart, and then there's change of the will, determination to turn. Look at verse 20a, the first part of 20. And he arose and came to his father. You see, you see there's that whole turning of the person toward Christ. It's not just saying it, it's not just feeling it, it is getting up and going. And he goes, in verse 20, and came to his father. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God, the sorrow according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, there is a sense, there's acknowledgement of sin in worldly sorrow, but there's an overwhelming sense of worldliness connected to it. In other words, there's no turning to God. There, there's concern about the shame it brought upon you. It is a concern about the sorrow that brought upon you. It's concerned about getting caught, what it does to you. That's worldly sorrow. It's brokenness for the wrong reasons rather than a brokenness, a repentance toward God and what it's done to my relationship with God. Godly sorrow acknowledges the pain it causes the Lord and the determination to turn from it and turn to God. That's genuine repentance. True repentance sees the holiness of God. He understands the wretchedness of sin. It's humble, it, it, it's brokenness, but it's also the reception of generosity of God that when we come to him, now, I said earlier, what was expected was that the repentant prodigal son to return to his family, there had to be restoration. His hope in his acceptance back home, his hope in the deliverance was, unfortunately, something he thought he could earn. Make me a hired hand. Let me begin this restitution. That's, that's the only flaw, we could say flaw, in this return of the son. New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey said this. I thought this was really good. He said this. The prodigal plans, the prodigal son, plans to offer his solution to the problem of their estrangement. He will acquire a skill, work as a paid craftsman, and be able to save money. For the present, the prodigal will not live at home. Only after the lost money is recovered will he presume to suggest reconciliation. Having failed to find a paying job in the far country, he will try to obtain his father's backing to become gainfully employed in his home and community. He will yet save himself, listen, 
he will yet save himself by keeping the law. I thought that was good. And then he goes on and says this. The prodigal thinks the problem is lost money. His anticipated solution trivializes the problem, which is not merely a matter of a broken law, but it's about a broken relationship, end quote. True repentance, the thinking, the emotion, change of direction. But the question now, though, is what is God's response to a repentant person, a sinner who repents? And the answer we saw from last week was what? God rejoices. We saw that in the first two parables. And we see it here as well. Does God make him do restitution before he's forgiven? Absolutely not. Look at the picture of the Father's love and restoration. 20 again, second part of that verse. But while he was still a long way off, he had gotten up, he's going back to the Father. He's a long way off. His Father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The Father sees the Son coming home. Was he on the porch waiting for him? We don't know. Was he, was he going around the house regularly, always looking down that road, knowing that's the road my son must come down at some point in his life? If there's going to be reconciliation, if I'm going to see him again, that's the road. And every time the father went around the house, he'd always look down that road. That's the way I vision it. He's always just looking, always looking. Hoping, praying. It's a picture of the father who allowed his son to spend wily the inheritance in sin and rebellion who considered him dead but never stopped loving him. The image of the eager father whose eyes seldom stray from the road of which his lost son must come. Beautiful, beautiful story. Beautiful picture. Compassion, he had compassion on him. That literally means the inner being, the, the intestines, really, the inward parts of the body. It's a way to say that the father felt deep within his soul, deep within his heart, deep within his belly, the love he had for his son. The waiting of the father had compassion from a distance, overwhelmed when he sees his son and runs to embrace him. The word ran doesn't mean shuffle, slow trot, the word run means he boogied. He got busy. So excited, he took off. Now we need to understand, in that day, men wore those long robes. Right? In those days, they wore long robes. And it would make it, it's impossible to run with those robes on. It's impossible. Unless they pulled up their robe and they were able to get their knees going and they would run. But the problem is, in that culture, for a man to do that, it would be humiliating for him. To expose his legs would be considered shameful and disrespectful. That's why the robes reach down that long, to keep someone to not to expose their legs. In fact, the rabbis taught that if a bird went up your robe on the Sabbath, you had to leave it there. Because <laughs> you can't expose your legs. You've got to wait till sundown or something. Brought shame upon yourself. Can you imagine that? So all who heard that he ran would have been, it would have been a gasp in the crowd. But what was more revealing and unbelievable is that Jesus embraced and kissed him. The verb used there, he kept embracing him, he kept kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. What a beautiful picture. 
He may have been out of breath, but he wasn't out of love when he went and wrapped his arms around his boy. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. I do not know that the prodigal saw his father, but the father saw him. The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eyes of our faith is dim compared with the eyes of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him, end quote. Listen, not only was it humiliating for the father to run, but what was also expected in that day is that he would make his son wait by the gate. You've dishonored me, you've shamed me, you've disrespected me. Now you're home, you stand by the gate for all the elders to see you and maybe an angry mob to meet you. You disgraced the family. In fact, Deuteronomy 21, under the law, they had the right to stone the boy. At minimum, a father would just say, you know what, stay there a couple of days. Let the community see you broken, dirty, skinny, haven't eaten. It's a shame culture, not honor and shame culture, not our individualistic culture. The whole community was involved. Keep scorn upon him for the dishonor of his family. And the Pharisees and the, and the scribes listening to the story believe that it would have been justified shaming him. Part of the retribution. You want to come back home, you got to earn it. The money and take the shame that was brought upon you. Then when restitution is paid back in full, we could talk about reconciliation. But what do we see here? The father leaves the porch runs in front of the community and takes the shame, the mockery that the son deserved upon himself to protect the boy, to protect his son from the shame and the pain that he deserved. He took the disdain, he, disdain, he took the slander so that the son doesn't have to bear it. The father emptying himself of any pride, rights, and honor and this self-emptying display of love brings shame upon himself in order to throw his arms around his repentant son, protecting him from the shame and dishonor and the ridicule of the family, of the community. I know we look at this verse, and I have as well, and I think there's something to be said, that this verse kind of prepares us for that wayward child that would come home. And that's true. But that's not really what this is all about. This parable is teaching us and presented to us to show us the unconditional love and forgiveness of God. The parable could be called the prodigal God, this lavishing love that God has for others. He ran to embrace him and kiss him. God's forgiveness is unconditional. Paul said, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the way we are to forgive, aren't we? No conditions. We don't sit on the porch and say, grovel in what you did to me, feel the pain for a long period of time, earn your way back, restore to me. Just, just watching you grovel will, will gain some debt back to me that you owe. No, that's not the way it works. Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we, in the same way, forgive us others or forgive those who have debts against us forgiveness is not optional family we're commanded to forgive 
Reconciliation, though, let me say, on the other hand, is different than forgiveness. Reconciliation will take place when there's genuine, true repentance. There is a difference. We have a sermon online. If you're not sure what that looks like, email one of the pastors. We'll send it to you. Forgiveness is not optional. Reconciliation can only happen when there's genuine repentance. And sometimes there needs to be boundaries and things of that nature. But the picture we see here and what, what God is teaching us and showing us and a beautiful picture is this smelly, wretched son coming home. He's a mess. The father's filled with compassion, runs, pulls up his robe, take robes, takes humiliation upon himself, protecting the son from this onslaught of, of ridicule, mockery, and shame without even knowing what's going to happen when the son gets there. Filled with compassion, filled with love. Filled with the willingness to forgive. And the son tells the father that he's repented. Look at, and he's willing to work for the restoration. Verse 21. And he gets half of the message out. And the son said to the father, just what he said he was going to say. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. And I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, I've disgraced you. I brought shame upon you. And then the, the, the story says the, the, the father really just stopped him in his tracks. He didn't get to finish. Let me be one of your hired hand. He was ready to say it, but the, but the father stops him. But the father rejoices and does what no one expected him to do. Verse 22. Father just said, oh, you know what? Get the servants. Bring quickly. Takis in the Greek. Immediately. The best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring in his hand, shoes on his feet. The, the robe belonged to the father, unmistakably accepts him back into the family, saying everything I have is still yours. The ring, a signet ring that they would use as a stamp to press into a, like a melted wax or a document for authority, the family, the familiar authority, a way to confirm transaction. The son now has the family signet ring. Even the, even the, the, the shoes, important. The, the slaves and the, and the, and the, the other servants wore bare feet, yet the son wore shoes. They understood what Jesus was saying. The son now is back into the fullness of his sonship. The father doesn't say, listen, I'll, I'll forgive you. Let's see how things work out for a couple of months. Let's wait and see whether you truly mean it or not. Family, that's not the way salvation works. It's a gift given to us by God, by faith in Christ. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf. Let's kill it. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. The son was dead. He's alive. Lost. He's found. And they began to celebrate. What a joy. Like the lost sheep, like the lost kind, there's rejoicing. When, when, a, when, when we see a repentant sinner come to Christ, we know that a resurrection has taken place. He's been born again, born anew. The one who's dead in trespass is made alive now in Christ. Folks, that's how forgiveness works. We repent and we turn and God brings us into his family. Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Pop, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Father tells the servant, listen, prepare a banquet. Celebrate the return of my son. Now, We've been studying the book of Luke. It's not by accident, but very intentional that Jesus uses this banquet 
uh, um, image again. If you remember, we learned from chapter 13 and chapter 14, he has spoken about this image, this, this banquet, this feast of God. Jesus' hearers would have easily recognized the significance of this feast that Jesus is throwing. Sinners and tax collectors, like the younger son symbolizes here, were entering into the kingdom. They were coming into the banquet of God. But notice also, all three of these parables, there's, there's this communal aspect. We talked about this in our community group. This personal salvation, you need to personally repent and believe on Jesus, yes. But there's a communal aspect. Each one of these parables, there's this common salvation theme. The shepherd finds the lost sheep, verse 6, gathers his friends, gathers his neighbors, rejoice with me. I found the sheep that was lost. Women lost her coin, verse 9. She found it, calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, I found that coin. And now the father gets his son back. What does he do? He throws a party. <laughs> Invites the community to his party. They get, a, they get a fattened calf, a corn grain fed piece of veal. I like that. Maybe you don't. Rejoicing. His son was dead, he's now alive. Family, remember earlier we said that the father was running toward the son, and what did that mean? He took the shame and scorn that his son deserved on himself. He, 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 he took the disdain, the mockery, the slander, so that his son did not have to bear it. How the father emptied himself of any pride and honor and self-emptying display of, of love brings shame on himself and throws his arms around his repented returning sinner, protecting him from the shame hurled on him by anyone else. Family, that's exactly what God does in the gospel. In Hebrews chapter 13, it tells us that Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem, outside the gate of the city, outside the city of David, a sign of exile, disdain, and rejection. Jesus himself experiences the exclusion, the curse that the human race deserves. He's alienated and cast out so that we can be brought home. That's the gospel. Instead of inflicting pain on those who mock him, he absorbs it. On the cross, Jesus loses intimate fellowship and communion for a season with the Father and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is forsaken and cast out of the family so that we can be brought into the family. Unlike the father in our story who didn't know what to expect, Jesus knew when he stepped out of heaven's glory and took on flesh what to expect. He came on a mission to be ridiculed and mocked and disregarded and disgraced for you and I. He did not just lift his robes and bare his legs in shame. He was stripped naked, mocked, spit upon, and crucified in utter shame for you and me. Like the father in our parable, Jesus took all that the son deserved. Jesus took all that we deserve. If you know the story, when he was crucified, the day he was crucified, soldiers mocked him, clothed him in purple, put a crown of thorns on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! Mocking him, hit him, and spit on him. Put a reed in his hand like a scepter, a, a mockery of his kingship. All this done in open public shame. But now listen, the reality is the mocking, the insult, and the shame, the spitting on him was done so that one day he will come and we will fall on our neck and kiss us as his children. 
God did not just wrap his arms around us. He spread them out on a cross and was crucified. That's the gospel. The embracing of God, the wonderful gift of salvation offered to you and me in Christ through the work of Jesus on the cross. The Father is saying, I'm not wanting you to pay off your debt. You're not going to wallow in the shame. You're not going to earn your way back into the family. I'm going to take you back into the family. I'm going to cover your shame. I'm going to cover your poverty, your nakedness and rags, and I'm going to clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he, the Father, made him Jesus to be our sin offering, who knew no sin, so that in him we, the children of God, might become the righteousness of God. Where are you this morning? Do you see the gospel? Do you see that God is seeking and pursuing sinners? Do you see God lovingly waiting for you to turn, to come to your senses and run to him? Are you willing to change the direction of your life and enter into a relationship with God as father and as adopted child of God? Repentance is not only for those who have come to know Christ as part of salvation. Faith and repentance, one coin, two sides. But repentance is called on from all Christians, because all of us sin. So maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ, and the call is, God is waiting. He's pursuing, he'll, he'll run after you if you'll just turn from your sin and trust him as your Savior and Lord. Or maybe you're a child of God, but you know what? You're wandering down that road. And the, and, and the message today for you is don't go. Turn, come home. God loves you, God forgives you. He has the robe to place on you, the righteousness of Christ, the ring to put on your finger, shoes on your feet. So wherever you are today, I pray that this message will, will speak to you and that together we will walk with Jesus by grace through faith. The band's going to come up. We're just going to bow our heads right now if we can. If everybody can just bow your heads with me as the band comes up. And let, let's, just, let's just pray together as a family. Let's just, just quietly in your hearts respond to the word, to the message this morning. Where are you? If you never come, come. If you never repented, turn from your sin, acknowledge that your sin is against God. Turn from that. Stop being your own Lord, your own Savior. And run to Jesus. He'll run and meet you, wrap his arms around you, and kiss and embrace you and forgive you. But maybe you're here, you're a follower of Christ, but you're going down that road. You're living in isolation and you're in a bad place. God rejoices over repentant sinners. Come to God. Rejoice. Father, thank you for this beautiful story, this parable from the lips of our Lord and Savior. God, we pray that it would draw us closer to you, deeper relationship with you, knowing that our Savior has come, has died, has rose, and calls all men everywhere to come. In Jesus' name, amen.